Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Pick two or three fried foods and eat them with four or five hours intermittent so you don't have a stomach ache. Get your selfies taken in the shade and for goodness sake, drink plenty of water. This week, almost every Republican running for president is headed to the Iowa State Fair. Famous for its fried Twinkies and statues of farm animals made out of butter, and every four years, extremely embarrassing photos of candidates eating unwieldy treats. The Iowa State Fair also kicks off a new, more intense period of the Republican primary season. As national televised debates begin this month, and we hit the five-month countdown until the Iowa caucuses. Iowa's importance in presidential nomination contests ebbs and flows, and this year the state looms as more important than ever. The conventional wisdom among Republicans is that if Donald Trump's opponents can't slow him down in Iowa, then the race may be over. Over the next few days, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, and some even lesser-known candidates will be crawling the fairgrounds outside of Des Moines and making their case for the presidency at two big events hosted by two Iowa political institutions, a literal soapbox sponsored by the Des Moines Register and a conversation series hosted by the state's Republican governor, Kim Reynolds. In between, they will be flipping burgers, dodging reporters, and wooing voters one-on-one in a place where retail politics still matters. Not everyone is fully on board with the program. Chris Christie isn't coming to town. He's given up on the state. And while Donald Trump is scheduled to arrive on Saturday, he's skipping both the soapbox and the interview with the governor, with whom he has a frosty relationship. He has his own gimmick planned instead. Trump is bringing nine members of Congress from Florida who have endorsed him over their own governor, Ron DeSantis. So with Trump dissing the state's popular governor, Christie dissing the state altogether, and everyone dissing DeSantis, this week is like the kickoff to a very messy, months-long family reunion for Republicans. And there's one guy whose job it is to keep the peace. Make sure caucus day comes off without a hitch, unify all the warring factions when the contest is over, and make sure that everyone comes back again in four years. He's the chairman of the Iowa Republican Party, Jeff Kaufman. And he's going to tell us not only how you survive the Iowa Fair with your dignity intact, but how you win the Iowa caucuses. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. Kaufman is a seventh-generation Iowa farmer, a former member of the State House, a community college professor, and he's been the chairman of the Iowa GOP for nine years. I don't think people realize that the extent to which the average Iowan, or in this case, the average Republican, is actually coming to the events, and they want to ask questions. It's worth saying at the outset that Iowa doesn't have a great track record of choosing the person who will be the presidential nominee. You've probably heard your snooty New Hampshire political friends scoff that Iowa picks corn while New Hampshire picks presidents. 
and there is something to that. John McCain barely competed here in 2008, Rick Santorum beat Mitt Romney in 2012, and Ted Cruz defeated Donald Trump in 2016. On the Republican side, you have to go all the way back to 2000 to find the last time that the Iowa winner became the nominee, George W. Bush. So to figure out who really has an edge this cycle, we wanted to talk to Kaufman about what's changed in Iowa and what hasn't, about the state's political geography, its new demographics, the -the under-the-radar issues driving the state's Republican voters, and which candidates actually understand all of this. Kaufman is a history professor, and this conversation amounts to a masterclass in everything you need to know to understand the Iowa Republican caucuses. Remember, there is always more than one ticket out of Iowa. All right. So there's this argument that the caucuses, and this argument, as people have said this about the Democrats, despite their more complicated process, that it has turned into more of a primary, that organization isn't what it used to be. And, you know, I think largely Trump doing so well in 2016, he, he obviously didn't win, but doing so well without any organization has prompted some people to say, it's really just about getting hot at the end and, you know, being a national media star because... You know, people and local activists in Iowa are all watching the same national media, Fox News and and all the rest. And there's sort of been a decline in local uh, media and that. So the caucus has become both nationalized and more of a momentum primary like contest rather than a contest of organization. So what's your view of that? Well, I would push back against that yeah. for several reasons. One I just uh, I was the MC for Congresswoman Ashley Henson's party that she had her event. 700 people packed. I could have gone up to that microphone and belched. I would have got a standing ovation. <laughs> I mean, they're just hungry, hungry to engage. Uh, we just had our Lincoln dinner. For the first time in my nine and a half years, 1,400 people, we were sold out. I was just at an event with Vice President Pence, who is certainly not leading in the polls here. It was up in Clinton, Iowa on a Sunday afternoon. I was in there, standing room only. Mm. We are getting this all over the place. And small, small county events, they are being able to attract these individuals. I don't think people realize that the extent to which the average Iowan, or in this case, the average Republican, is actually coming to the events, and they want to ask questions. I mean, they are ready to ask questions. It can sway them back and forth. And don't forget, in 2016, Ted Cruz won, not necessarily because his personality was more sparkling and more charismatic than Donald Trump. <laughs> well, nobody's ever said that. <laughs> yeah, no, but you know when I knew that he was probably going to win, and I couldn't say it on the to the press— And that's when he rented out essentially an entire dormitory and filled it with campaign workers for that evening. Marco Rubio, if you recall, was coming on strong in third place. I can tell you exactly what pushed Senator Rubio into that upward momentum, and that is he changed up what he was doing, starting to move his campaign out into the non-urban areas and was starting to get grounding. I think Senator Rubio certainly could have finished higher had he had another three or four weeks of his change Interesting. He had momentum at the end there, huh? Absolutely. So I, no, I don't think so. And you know, the other thing about Iowa, see, I've heard, I've also had people say the opposite. Well, Jeff, more about organization. It's more about organization. Well, and I've also had people say, well, this is a Christian evangelical state. And so, you know, if you're a Republican that where your emphasis on the social issues, you don't do very well here. Well, I mean, Donald Trump 
pretty much right. lays that to rest. Right. right. And anytime you have a state that has, uh, you know, know you're going to have the glare on it. You've got people in the state that are very good in trying to convince people they're kingmakers, that somehow they're disproportionately, you know, more important than others. Their endorsement. I matters. think I know who you're talking about, but you're probably yeah. too polite to say some say names. Uh, <laughs> That, that would be correct. And I'm telling you right now, one thing you can say about the Iowans, they actually push back about kingmakers. Kingmakers, yeah. the typical people that call themselves kingmakers in Iowa, are the ones that look at the polls, join up at the last minute, and endorse somebody, and then take credit for everything that candidate <laughs> did. So that's all I'm going to say about that, and you'll never get a name out of me. It's a good lesson to sort of view some of the self-declared kingmakers and, and whether they're endorsing early or at the last second. <laughs> so continuing with our, with our Caucus 101, and uh, you know, I want you to imagine uh, me or our listeners as you know, if we were a, a candidate that comes to you and says, how do I win this state? Give me the basics. You, you mentioned the evangelicals. Iowa has a reputation as being um, that's the key demographic. But give us an overview of the Republican Party demographics right now, how it's changed and how it is similar or different from the popular uh, cliches about the state and any groups that since 2016, the last open caucus, that have sort of increased their size in the, in the Republican Party. Or it's still, you know, it's just old white farmers who are, you know, regular churchgoers, right? That's the cliche that that's the biggest demographic group. Tell us about that. Of course. And if I didn't want Iowa to be first in the nation, that's exactly how I'd characterize it. <laughs> but, you know, but, but don't, don't, don't forget a Cuban American in 2016 got first, yeah. a Cuban American got third an African American got fourth. Yeah. Uh, right now you look at the diversity of the candidates that are crisscrossing this state, whether it be Tim Scott, whether it be Larry Elder, whether it be Nikki Haley, whether it be Vivek, we absolutely have diversity in our candidates. Now, I'm not going to argue that demographically we are a cross-section of the United States. What I will argue is to remind everybody that this is a process that is not just Iowa first in the nation. This is a process of four carve-out states where you have Nevada, South Carolina, right, New right. Hampshire, and Iowa. We so all that's are the, in this together. Right. right. And, and together, that gives you more diversity. But Absolutely. Is anything, any interesting demographic trends in the state that might surprise people, or is it pretty stable since 2016? A couple of things. First of all, I really think that Iowa, in fact, we've had one fundamental shift. And I tell people this in the Republican Party that I know do not like Donald Trump. They are what I would call never Trumpers. And I will say, you know, it, you are who you are. I listen to everybody. Uh, just be a caucus, regardless who you vote for. But I'm telling you this right now, and I tell them that, and I would tell this to any person as a political science person, not necessarily as a chair. The one thing you have to give Donald Trump, what he has done for this state, he has made the Republican Party blue collar again. Mm. And for a lot of people like me that are now looking long-term at the health of the Republican Party and of Iowa, that is a great trend. Yeah. I mean, our first president, what do we remember most about Abraham Lincoln? He's born in a log cabin. Well, it's not the log cabin. It's the fact that Lincoln was one of us. We can now look, even if we end up nominating a billionaire, we can actually look people in the eye and say that a lot of our policy stances and certainly the way people that are voting in this county are blue collar. I could feel it. I'll never forget this because I, I started, I would have laughed if you told me Donald Trump was going to be the nominee. I mean, absolutely did I not yeah. think this. 
And I was yeah. standing about August in Council Bluffs, and I I could feel it. I mean, you could feel it in the crowd. I thought, oh my Lord, this is real. This guy is going to win. And what I could feel is people, even people that weren't interested, it's everything from loving Donald Trump to a lot of times giving the middle finger to both political parties that they believed had failed them. That was the Donald Trump phenomena in a lot of areas. It wasn't so much the candidate as much as what the candidate was standing for. That's what I think has fundamentally changed here. That's why I think we're on a fairly long term. I wouldn't say permanent because we will always have independent swing tendencies about Iowa. Iowa has had that since the 1870s. But for right now, we're going to stay red for a while. And the reason is because of that blue collar element. I wish I could tell you it was my genius. It's not. It's the blue collar and also Joe Biden. God bless. It was, and then we've held on to that. Listen yeah. to these 13 candidates, with the exception of Will Hurd and Chris Christie. Every single one of them in their speech, you could say, there it is. And then you go to the next speech. There it is, right there. I knew it was going to come. What do you mean and when that, you say there it is? What, what, what is it? The, the populism. Got it. The populism. It. The yeah. I, I feel your yeah. pain and actually giving them reason to believe What's that? That's interesting. Just to uh, dig into that a little deeper, if you, uh, if you had to really pinpoint the issues where that populism expresses itself right now when you're watching these guys on the stump. And I imagine it's being translated at the legislature level and, and maybe even at the statewide level. What are the issues where you see that change? I think there's a a strong emphasis on, we're seeing some pushback on some tax credits Mm. and some programs, programs that are targeting Corporate yeah. America. So what I'm not what the left would call corporate welfare. And, I, you know, the populist right now uses that expression as well. And, and you're seeing at the legislative level, you're seeing some pushback on that. Mm. Uh, you're seeing some emphasis. I think a lot of the parental rights issues, I think you're seeing some of that in terms of the political demographics. I'm yeah. really heartened by what I'm seeing right now in Iowa. And that's going to be one of my goals during the general election. And that is the Latino voter here in this state. We're seeing some trend lines there where we are we are making some inroads, and it's the inroads we're making in the Latino population is back to that populist uh, realm, yeah. uh, to that populist element. We've got several people that are fighting about a pipeline now, a carbon uh, pipeline. If you listen, and we got Republicans on both sides of that, yeah, I, I will say that. But if you listen to the opposition you will hear almost the pure populism as defined in a political science uh, textbook yeah. in that rhetoric. That's very interesting. It really is real. And again, that that's the one thing that you'll see as common among these, these 13 candidates. Chris Christie decided to blow off Iowa, so I'm blowing off Chris Christie. So I just call it the 13 instead of 14. If he'd show up here, I'd call it 14 again. But the, Have you talked to him? 13, I I have not. I I just I've, I've read his press releases that he's not interested in campaigning in Iowa. He's one of the. I think just he and Donald Trump are not doing the governor's fireside chats. Uh, and Donald Trump had already said that. So you know what? I, go ahead. But with the exception for uh, with Will Hurd, maybe Asa Hutchinson, every single one of these other Republican candidates have a head nod to some of the most significant Trump issues. They may package it differently. They may be softer and they may not tweet about it, but it's still there. So when I look at that, and I've done some reporting on some of the issues in Iowa, where I see some of the tensions and what you're talking about is a couple of places. One on immigration, 
because we all know that the agricultural industry in Iowa relies on undocumented immigrants. And so there's a little bit of a, of a tension between whether it's big ag, but I, I imagine some of the smaller agricultural businesses as well. They don't want to see every undocumented immigrant uh, working in a dairy or in a, a meatpacking house uh, thrown out, out of the country tomorrow. That would cause quite a bit of disruption. We all know that. And then on some of the, the subsidies, right? Agricultural subsidies are still uh, important to a lot of Iowans. And then, in, you know, you were talking about tax credits, and this probably edges into with, um, ethanol and government support for ethanol. So I see that as like popping up a little bit, but it hasn't, it doesn't seem to have, and correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe at the legislature level, there's some big fights about this. How, um, how much tension, you know, is that populism versus government support, for lack of a, of a better phrase, popping up in the legislature and on the campaign trail right now? And, and correct me if, I, if any of those examples you think are off. I No, I, I think there's definitely, if you, especially if you get to the level of the purity of the position and if you have a venue by which you have the time to flesh all of that out. I mean, by the time you get down to populism versus government subsidy and the subtleties about that, you know, you've got to, you've got to spend at least, you got to get there for at least five minutes. Yeah. You're not going to do yeah, that yeah. in the question and answer yeah. session. What I see happening, and Ted Cruz is a good example of this. Ted Cruz was no friend to ethanol. Ted Cruz was a in love with fossil fuels and our petroleum industry. It's a Texas versus Iowa thing. Absolutely. And you know what? You know what Ted Cruz did? He was just up front. I mean, he just said it. And it was amazing for me because I didn't know the answer to your question. And I didn't know the answer to the question of, is this going to help Ted Cruz? There seems to be an acceptance by GOP caucus goers that if you're going to be up front and tell you, yes, yeah. Yeah. I am pro-ethanol or I'm not, or the, the whole issue of uh, immigration, I really think that if the honesty, and that's the in-your-face type of situation you have in a first-of-the-nation state, I really think we go back to the 80-20. Right, Most right. Iowa caucus goers do not demand purity. They just demand truthfulness in your position, and they'll look at the big picture. And if you agree with them 80% of the time, you got to crack at that boat. Is ethanol still as important in Iowa as it's ever been? And then what are some of the issues that are popping up in the state that maybe we don't see as much discussion of in the, in the national press that are sort of the hot issues of uh, 2023, 2024? Uh, ethanol, absolutely. It is critical politically. And it's also critical uh, policy-wise. So if I'm a legislator from Bettendorf, Iowa, yeah. in fact, I got a friend that's, and he, I don't know, he's got like one cow in his district and maybe three stalks of corn. <laughs> he's got a position on ethanol because politically it's critical. Got it. So absolutely ethanol is very important. That hasn't so you're changed. Deep, no, it has not changed. I, and I don't see yeah. that it will. Has it even become more important or just as important as ever? I'd say as important as ever. Yeah. I definitely say, you know, other issues that have come up, certainly the border. We now have a new attorney general. It's first Republican attorney general, literally since I've been in high school that Iowa has had. It's one of the big, big upsets and, and successes from my perspective in 2022. But she has gotten heavily involved in the whole issue of fentanyl. Hmm. Uh, our governor has sent uh, National Guard troops down to the border. I really think the immigration issue is important. In terms of that of that tension that you could have among some of the agricultural labor needs, yeah. 
I think most of the focus that unites Republicans on that issue and unites these 13 that are crisscrossing the state, I think it's more about the border. It's more about uh, about some kind of regulation on the border. Yeah. Not kicking uh, everyone not, out and destroy, you know, and, and ruining the, the ability to have the dairies operate. Exactly. And the fet- the fentanyl issue but is fentanyl the bridge is, is a bi- that yeah. overwhelms. Yes. Are people in Iowa very cognizant of the fentanyl issue because it is affecting their communities? Or is it more just knowledge of it as a national issue? Um, I would say initially it was a national issue, but I, I, and I don't have any, this is more anecdotal. I've had, I've, I've heard politicians say this. I have no reason to doubt it, but I doubt if you can find very many Iowans that are not more than two or at the most three people removed from somebody whose life was affected by fentanyl. Maybe not, wow. maybe not wow. a death, but certainly yeah. having overcome a an addiction. And these are folks that by every measure that society has for success, pick your, your metric, yeah. have fallen to fentanyl and have had to claw their way out, kicking and screaming into a clear vision and, and getting rid of this, yeah. this rotten substance. I remember in 2016, just speaking of issues that are under the radar, one of my favorite stories after the election was Ted Cruz's campaign said that they did some very sophisticated micro-targeting, and the research they did on caucus goers, they found that there was a small population who was really worked up about some fireworks regulation that was going through the legislature (laughs) at the time. And so they had a whole program just to target the 1,000, 2,000, I don't know how many people it could have been, uh, people who were pissed off that they were going to regulate fireworks. I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but that always struck me as very interesting and a lesson that um, before the caucus is over, it's worth sort of digging in a little bit about what some of those micro issues might be. I know exactly what you're talking about. And you wake up somebody at midnight or disturb little Fifi, uh, you know, the 12-year-old poodle. Oh, my Lord. That's a bigger deal than almost anything else. So, yeah, (laughs) all politics is local. The caucuses put that on steroids. So we talked about Chris Christie. You've written Chris Christie off because he's not campaigning in Iowa and he has not said nice things about Iowa. Um, Donald Trump is not coming to the main event at the Iowa State Fair, this series of conversations with the governor. He's had a sort of testy relationship with her to the point where Ron DeSantis has turned this into one of his top campaign issues, just attacking Trump for being less than fully enthusiastic about your your governor. How big a deal is it from the Republican Party chair's perspective that the front runner is not coming to what are two right now two of the most important events of 2023 the Iowa State Fair speaker series with the governor and at least as of now the debate yeah that's uh the debate uh you know we'll we'll see okay um i that's you a, think he's coming I, I well let's put it this way if we are lucky enough here in the hawkeye state to get a debate I would be stunned. I don't have any inside information. I would be stunned if he wasn't at the debate. But remember, he didn't come to the last debate in Des Moines. Your, well, your son so, works for Trump. Can't you just call up your son and say, hey, what's going on here? Uh, I wish that he had that line of information he could give me. But that's, uh, and he knows sometimes. My son would probably tell you that because I'm so ardently making sure that I'm I'm neutral, he would probably say I overcorrect myself on that sometimes, but we'll wait and see on the All debate. Right, wait and see. To be um, deter- TBD on the debate. 
Absolutely. So I, I sat beside the governor. I mean, we were literally uh, a foot apart the entire evening listening to those 13 uh, candidates. At the recent and Lincoln it, Day dinner? At the recent Lincoln dinner. I mean, I we, we talked constantly the entire. In fact, if she wouldn't have been the governor, my wife might have shushed us. And so, the, <laughs> and so, you know, obviously, as everybody was, they were observing her. You know, when Trump got to the stage and when Ron DeSantis got to the stage and other governors. She knows Asa Hutchinson real well. And I could tell you, in terms of her applause, in terms of her smiling, in terms of how hard she was clapping, you know, I was in a perfect position of that. I will tell you that the policy positions that were good for Iowa that Trump brought up in his 10 minutes, she clapped no less or no more than she did for some of the other candidates. From the perspective of the governor, and again, this is an unguarded situation. Heck, I don't even know. Maybe she wouldn't even want me to say this uh, to you, but I literally, from her perspective, could not tell that there was anything going on. And I think it just falls back to she is so overly concerned with what's good for Iowa. It's the reason why she's not endorsing anyone, because she believes that from her perspective, not endorsing when you're in the first of the nation state helps us to retain that first of the nation. So from her perspective, She's really, I think she's diffusing anything. Uh, and I think she's going right back. It's the reason why she has an approval rating that's going through the roof yeah. because she's she's just going to be hard-nosed and she's going to continue to support whatever's good for Iowa. As far as uh, the president's, I mean, I'm glad he's coming, or the former president, I'm glad he's coming to the state fair. Uh, I want him to come to the state fair. I think this is a, I mean, I, I think this is a great opportunity to sit down with this governor because I'm going to tell you something. She will be an enthusiastic, non-gotcha She's not going to ask. This isn't going to be like Tim Russert or something. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, we're used to, I mean, questions. there's. You think he and, might well, still and, do it? I, you know, I don't know. I, I truly don't know. I mean, there's a lot of elbows. Uh, you know, it's a full contact sport. Yeah. And I've told people, I told people that night, look, we're, there's going to be some elbow. There's going to be some upset people. There's going to be some folks. It's going to take them a month. Uh, maybe a little counseling. Who knows when I mean, their candidate we, doesn't you win. You can't be surprised that he's not a huge fan of hers. I mean, the history of that relationship is a bit fraught. Yeah, but Iowa has been very good to Donald Trump and Kim Reynolds is Iowa. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you, you look at her numbers here. Kim Reynolds has now personified small town girl, conservative down the, you know, just right down the line. She is Iowa. Last time when Donald Trump came in second place in the Iowa caucuses, he alleged that the results were fraudulent and that he actually won. Now, he has a history of doing this. He's the dominant front runner right now. The race might tighten, though, uh, as we approach January. One, what is your message to any candidate who either before or after the results uh, falsely accuses you, the GOP chairman and the people running this caucus, that the results are fixed? And what did you think of him doing that last time? Well, I, I talked to him about what happened in Iowa and specifically what he was upset about was, I don't know if you remember, but they put out a tweet, or not a tweet, but they put out on social media that Ben Carson was pulling out of the race. Uh, they blamed it on the Cruz campaign. I don't know who did it. There were several people that 
they claim that started it, but I know this. I know this happened because in several of the precinct caucuses, we were getting, I mean, we were getting flooded. Is Ben Carson really out of the race? The idea behind that is that the Ben Carson folks, if people thought they were out of the race, would then automatically choose Ted Cruz. That happened, no doubt about it. I don't know that I would call that that didn't have anything to do with counting the results or anything. What it did is, in my opinion, is some nefarious nefarious motives on the part of whoever was saying that because right. Ben Carson never implied that whatsoever. So I understand the anger of that. Right. As far as, far as counting, yeah. we are going to put on really two elections. We are going to put on an election with an app. It will be sophisticated. Uh, it will be something that we're going to share with national media, and you'll be seeing the results almost in real time. I mean, it's going to be something that is going to surpass. The Democrats aren't going to compliment me, but they're not, they're not going to find any place where they can criticize. But that's not good enough because you know, you and I both know, if the Democrats aren't here uh, and, they're, and they're not having their caucus, we're going to have countries starting trying to fool around with us. Right. We're going to have other candidates possibly fool around. We're going to have Democrats. So we're going to have a second election. I, I'm calling it that, but it's going to be, we are also going to do this and it's going to be 100% paper. We're doing that in, in case it's razor close. And the last time in 2016, not only did we have amazing results in real time, we were able to audit those results, pick up all, all of the results from all 1700 plus precincts on a snowstorm and have everything accounted for in 48 hours. We're doing that again. We also had Harvard come in, a group from Harvard come in and take a look at all of our processes. We're going to ask and invite them to do that again. So here would be my message to anyone that either is going to attempt to disrupt our caucuses or anyone that is going to question the results of those caucuses. We are going to have so many checks. We are going to have checks upon checks upon checks. It is going to be impossible with any degree of truthfulness to question what you're going to see Iowa do because it's not going to be just us looking at them. Everything we do, Ryan, you and your team at Politico is going to be able to double check us in almost real time. Got it. And and just to be clear, Donald Trump did not win the 2016 Iowa caucuses. No, did I say that? No, you didn't. But he he has said that in the past. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the farm bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. What's the likely size of the caucus-going population in January going to be? What's your prediction right now? I, You know, I'm not prepared yet to say uh, that we're going to set a record. Uh, you know, we're going to go over that 170,000, 150, because I think a lot of it depends on if the polls tighten. We did set a record in 2020, and it was just a matter of get out the vote. Uh, we did set a record for the caucus when you have an incumbent running for re-election. Uh, it was about the only thing that Trump 
could strive for that would set a record, you know, that would give him bragging rights. So we hit that one. If the polls tighten, we will set a record. Got we, it. We you need a competitive a couple of hundred thousand. You need a competitive horse race though for it to set a record. Yes, but and and this is the one thing. Remember, there is always more than one ticket out of Iowa. And I believe if the let's just say Trump remains ahead. Yeah. If there's a horse race for second, that person that wins that horse race is going to get a bump. I also think there's a horse race possibly for among that group, probably roughly half of the 14 that are working on name recognition. Uh, if Larry Elder makes the debate stage, if uh, Vivek would end up being third place, if Mayor Suarez would end up in fifth place, those are all stories. They can all tout that. And they yeah. remember, they got another crack with three more carve-out states. Yeah, because expectations don't really solidify until like the final two weeks. That's right. You know, we could have a of a VEX surge and decline, and it's no longer interesting that he's coming in, in second by the time New Year's Eve comes around. So we don't really know Absolutely. who the unexpected fairy tale stories are, are going to be until the very end, right? Right. Um, I'm sure these candidates ask you these types of questions. What's something that you can spend money on in the state that actually uh, is a good return on investment for a campaign? Gasoline. Uh, Rick, Rick Santorum, Rick Santorum was an ethanol, 10% ethanol blend. Um, but the, you mean just cheaper. to travel around the state or you mean just, absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly what I mean. And, and, you know, Rick Santorum, literally, I know it kind of sounds almost made up cause it's so mythical like, but, but Rick Santorum literally got in an old truck and he went from County to County, he ended up winning Iowa, yeah. you know, showing up at these County events, that's not very expensive. Advertising on cable networks in the small towns, doing the editorial boards mm. in these small towns. They papers. still matter, huh? People read their local papers, and there are yes. quite a few of them in Iowa. Absolutely. A lot of rural papers. And the beauty of that is if you go, like out in Southwest Iowa, you can if you go to the right person, you can actually do an editorial board in one paper, and it ends up being printed in 15. Oh, because so because oh, it's the it. same or it's a conglomerate yeah, owns yeah. all those rural papers, but they still want to preserve the ruralness and the uniqueness of that paper. But they want to bring in national headlines and, you know, a person visiting and, and talk about rural Iowa. That's a national leader. My goodness, that's I mean, that, Tim Scott shows up in uh, a small town in, in, in southern Iowa. It shows up in Van Buren County. That's major, major coverage. That's front page, a picture above the fold that's going to get repeated over and over and over that's again. St and that's still important. You know, I, I want to ask you about media because I remember once Lindsey Graham was uh, working on an immigration bill that wasn't so popular with Republicans in South Carolina. This was back in 2013, I think. And he told me that he needed to get the bill done before his primary started and before Fox News started going after him on the immigration bill. And he threw out a statistic that 70% of his voters, Republican primary voters, those are the ones he was worried about, watched Fox News as their main news source. I don't know what that number is today. But anyway, in 2013, Lindsey Graham had it in his head and he was very conscious of it. What's the media diet of the Republicans in Iowa these days? One caveat to answer that question is we've got not the editorial boards. Yeah. Okay. But as far as our, our key statewide reporters, we got, you know, like 
10 of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, Kay Henderson's kind of the dean yeah. from Radio Iowa. And there are, there are others, even, you know, the Des Moines Register Board. I, you know, I go after them all the time. But Brianne, I can't think of a time when she has deliberately been biased towards what I have to say. So I, I, the first caveat I would say is with the exception, as long as people make a difference yeah. uh, I, I, or differentiate between the editorial boards and our statewide press, we have Republicans aren't nearly as skeptical and feel like people are, are, are attacking them that way. So there, you start out with an element that as long as there's an element of fairness, as long as they see in an article Republican versus Democrat, or as long as they see every once in a while a positive about Kim Reynolds, uh, you know, for every negative, we we don't have, I don't think, as much. It's not like an urban area where you might have a complete saturation of negative press. So I, I, I we start out with that. You know, I hear when I, you, you say Fox News, I've got people that that's all they listen to. Uh, part of it is because they love Fox News. Another part of that can be it beats MSNBC. Uh, you know, there, there are various reasons for that. I've got people that are mad at Fox News over Tucker Carlson. I've got people that were mad at Fox News over, uh, you know, over Megyn Kelly. I've got, so I've got people that don't believe Fox News goes far enough. I've got people that believe that Fox News is, you know, uh, you know too far right wing. So we've got kind of the spectrum in the GOP in terms of our perspective. But as long as MSNBC has CNN and ABC as competitors for the left, and as long as, as Fox News does not have that other gorilla in the room, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, that other that other yeah. media giant in the room to really put a, a rivalry for the right side or the conservative side, I think Fox News is going to continue to be the go-to, but not without healthy criticism and skepticism. And I've seen that increase. Interesting. Let's just get a little baseline about who you are and how you got to this position. I mean, Iowa is the epicenter of American politics this year. It is the most important state for the Republican contest. I think a lot of people think the winner of Iowa is very, very likely to be the nominee, but certainly the number one and two, one of those top two is very likely to be the nominee. A lot of people think this is the most important election in our history. So that sort of makes, and you're the guy running it, sort of makes you the most important person in politics right now. Wow, I wish my mother-in-law could have just heard that. Uh, but yeah, I feel like I'm on a roller coaster, the kind that I would never ride at 60 years old. And I'm kind of enjoying it after I've checked my safety harness about five times before we started. But it, yeah, it feels like that. It feels like I'm I'm here on a political crazy, wonderful grassroots ride. Um, and you know how I got to this point, I was a, I'm a, a history professor and was really what university? a major part of Tell everyone what university. I, I, it's actually at, at a community college in Muscatine. I got my uh, PhD from the university of Iowa over there in Johnson County. So I, I, I don't speaking of liberal schools <laughs> <laughs> and you know what my, uh, I think my uh, PhD advisor from Harvard, I'm guessing he was on the McGovern campaign and he and I just thought the world of each other. So it is possible to bridge those divides. In fact, I still think uh, uh, quite a bit of him. But uh, you know, I ran for the legislature. I was in leadership in the, le in the legislature uh, for about a decade. 
and then retired, was minding my own business. Uh, the Ron Paul forces swept into uh, Iowa and just basically took over the party, ruined the party, bankrupted the party, and then Governor Branstad called me in and uh, built it from there, and here we are. I, I, When I was in the legislature, I really never even paid attention to party politics. In fact, if anything, I was maybe just a little bit flippant about it, uh, now we've what one of the things that we've been able to do here, and this is the secret to our success, um, and that is I, I feel like I'm leading a very very large battleship. So unlike places like Nebraska or Idaho, where the party is just you know hammering against the the GOP and the GOP doesn't trust the federal officials and the other officials there, we are actually one big unified whole here. So the governor and I talk. Weekly, uh, Senator Grassley, Senator Ernst, our federal delegation. I served with over half of them in the legislature. Uh, my son is in the uh, in the state house, so we actually work. Not necessarily agree with everybody uh, with each other all the time, but we work as a unified whole. And you will have people tell you, from Kevin McCarthy to Ronna McDaniel to Newt Gingrich, they will tell you that that's been the secret to success out here in Iowa. I'm really leading a monolith. And, uh, you know, we, we live by here in Iowa, ex- with the exception of a few on the extreme, extreme right. We actually live by Reagan's adage, if I can paraphrase, that if we agree 80% of the time, it makes us friends. Uh, it does not make us 20% enemies. And that, that is, if there's a mantra, uh, that would be it. And, and so what it means is we, we have a very practical eye on elections. Uh, we actually adhere uh, to the people's wishes in a uh, primary. So if the people give us someone that is an extreme right that fits Sioux County, Iowa, I'm on the team. If the people give us someone in uh, suburban Des Moines that's a moderate, I'm on the team. And uh, so we kind of have our cake and eat it too here. And the most important thing is we're not like New Hampshire. Uh, the taxpayers don't pay for our election. Uh, South Carolina, the taxpayers pay for their election. In Nevada, if they go with the primary, they pay for that. I have to raise every single dime. Plus, I'm held accountable to all of the press and should be. I'm held accountable for every single Republican, including those that are already skeptical if we can count the votes. And we have to have those things out almost in real time. We have to have a professional election, and it's all on money that we raise. So I I think in some ways, uh, everything in my life before this has led up to 2016 and now 2024, and I'm vigilantly neutral about the candidate. You can ask anyone from, from, you know, Governor DeSantis all the way to Mayor Suarez, and they will tell you that I am, I have been good to them and I have been fair to them and that will continue. What was the issue that made you become a legislator? Was there one thing? Was there one fed up moment where you said, you know what, I got to get involved? Or did someone just tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you'd be really good. Why don't you run? How did, how did that happen? Just quickly. the, The latter. I am, in my blood, rural Iowa. My grandson is the ninth generation in this. Ninth generation. Ninth generation. So, what year did they start? 1836. My great, 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 great grandmother came here uh, to Iowa Territory, and and I've been. Uh, I'm on the same farm. Uh, there was a log cabin of a, of a relative of mine on this farm that, that I'm sitting right now. That is amazing. In 1836. So I I bleed. 
rural Iowa. And when I was in the legislature, in some ways this would be true today, although by nature my role today is partisan to contrast, but I will cut, I, I was able to cut a lot of deals with rural Democrats when I was in the legislature. If it was truly about rural small town Iowa, that's probably what motivates me more than anything. And so making sure that, that resources were spread out evenly, making sure that property rights were honored yeah. and followed, those are things that move me. Um, and uh, probably those are lead issues and probably will to the day I take my last breath. We don't have time to go through all of this history from 1836, but I have to ask, so where did the family come from? Uh, Germany. We're Germ- Germany? Or German immigrants. Uh, that's where one branch of my family. The other branch of my family uh, came from uh, in the east, Massachusetts, Virginia, Revolutionary War veterans. I mean, I've, wow. I've got so it all. This is like Mayflower, uh, Mayflower stock here. I actually am a direct descendant of seven uh, Mayflower. <laughs> that sounds like a fascinating story. So nine generations now, you're number seven. When you were in the legislature, you were watching the caucuses uh, from that very interesting perspective. Tell us a little bit about, before we get into the chairmanship, what it's like to be a Republican legislature on the cusp of an open caucus for, for president, obviously. You, you never realized how popular you could and be. And give us the year I so mean, people have that context. Oh, sure, sure. I was in the legislature from uh, 2005 to 2013. All right. So two great primaries. Absolutely. And let me tell you, and it's even more so today, the desire to get endorsements from legislators. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that it matters a lot, but it sure does give those middle level, middle layered campaign staffers something to do. Uh, and so it becomes, I mean, a real back and forth. And I'll tell you, I didn't realize how popular I was throughout the nation. I really did. And I know it was heartfelt. It just didn't have anything to do with getting I'm sure you stay in touch with these people. They write you, you know, Christmas cards every year. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. In fact, I, I would guess there's a lot of these national figures have grandchildren named Jeff. Uh, that's how close we became. And I sometimes I endorse, sometimes I didn't. Be quite frank with you at that time, when your head is in the legislature, you're constantly looking on, is this good for my constituents? Does this help give me clout right. in the legislature to, you know, to advocate for these rural issues? I, I, I have to tell you this, it's it's probably the the truest mark of what is unique about our caucus and what really gets me passionate about it. Cause I, you know, there's, a, I gotta say a lot of things as chair and I got, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I got a fake passion. Sometimes <laughs> I got a fake anger. Sometimes I got a fake joy. You know, it's kind of like a, an ongoing dinner with your in-laws. All right. So give us some, tell us some of your favorite war stories from being in the legislature and being wooed the way that the legislators <laughs> are being wooed right now in the legislature. What's that like? Well, I mean, suddenly you're the gotta, most popular, per, you're one of the most popular politicians in the country. You go from, you know, look, let's be honest, nobody outside of your state really knowing who you are to. I can't believe you said that. <laughs> well, I unless am you're in absolutely leadership. Absolutely stunned. Okay. <laughs> I mean, unless you're a real I'm political kidding. junkie, most people aren't paying uh, attention to their own legislators, let alone ones in neighboring states. But suddenly you've got this, you know, few hundred people who are deep into this process, you've got your name on a list, right? And you've yep. got an open yep. caucus. And uh, let's, let's start with 2008. That's a, you know, John McCain eventually wins it. McCain didn't really play much in Iowa. He, he tried to sneak in there at the end. Give us a little bit of the flavor of what it's like in the year plus uh, b- before caucus day. Sure. A couple of things. Uh, 
almost every one of those GOP candidates are going to visit during the session, which is essentially January through May, they're going to stop in and visit in the caucus. And so I remember actually, because, you know, John McCain to me was a war hero. I, I mean, I, what that man did, I, I honest to God, don't care whether he's a Republican or Democrat. What he did was absolutely off the charts, raw, pure courage, especially when he gave up being able to leave that POW camp because he didn't want to leave his, his man. So when he walked in, it was just, and I was kind of in awe. I was thinking, wow, this, you know, I, I met a lot of war heroes, uh, but that, you know, he was definitely the most pronounced to me. It was, it was exciting to see him. It was exciting to shake his hand. And I realized as we all, all of uh, uh, us legislators were sitting in that room and he was talking to us. I mean, we all knew intuitively that he was wanting our endorsement, but just to be there in that small room, it actually not only made you feel special, it actually reinforced that, you know what? In our individual districts, we do have some responsibilities here. I mean, my folks are expecting me to take this decision of who I'm going to support very, very seriously. Because without my people back home, he wouldn't, John McCain wouldn't know me from anything. I mean, the only reason I'm in this room is because of them. So you got to think, uh, think about it from a constituent service perspective. Absolutely. The people you're representing, not just your personal view of this. Absolutely. And in a state like Iowa, where we have a citizen legislature, I mean, all of our people have other careers. Um, yeah. It's it's especially important. And it's easy, especially the, the younger person is, it's easy to get carried away with the attention. It's easy to think that, wow, maybe I really am important. So you have to really continually give yourself a gut check that, you know, you're being wooed, not because of you, but because the that, that a group of people in the tens of thousands have decided to put you in this place. I got to tell you one other time, uh, and this is the history professor coming out of me, but people were telling me, well, Hillary Clinton's in the room. Now, this was in 2000, this had been 2008, and I was in the legislature, and they said, Hillary Clinton's in uh, just down the hall. She's coming out of the uh, Democratic caucus. So I turned to, a, I, I turned to, his name was Bill Schickel from Mason City. He was a GOP candidate. I turned to him, I says, you want to go down there? And he says, yeah, I do. As a history professor. Yeah. She's the first lady. Yeah. This is cool. I'm going to meet her. I'm never going to vote for it. Not a micron of a prayer am I going to vote for, her, but I want to meet her. So I stood outside. Well, immediately she comes over to us and cameras surround us because here's, you know, Republicans that are, that are meeting her. We had a nice visit. She was asking me about a hotel, a motel where her mom and dad stayed when she was a kid, uh, shook hands with her. And I remember I, oh, I got a little backlash from it. And, uh, <laughs> somebody, somebody asked me, what are you doing? I said, she's the first lady. I'm a history professor. Shame on me if I don't go down and shake the hand of a of a former first lady. So, you know, opportunities like that is is what you have. In 2012, there was an ice storm. I was heading over to Iowa City. Mitt Romney wanted to talk to me. I'm sure he read about me on Wikipedia and just thought I was amazing. It had nothing to do but with it. But by 2012, you were in leadership. At that I was point. in leadership, yes. But it wasn't right. leadership, uh, Ryan. This was just my magnetic personality, I'm sure, that he picked <laughs> up on. So, he went, so we went over there. Well, it was an ice storm. Nobody showed up but one other person. So I got to sit there. And I'm, you know, as a, as a Republican chair right now, I'm not a big fan of Mitt Romney anymore, to be honest. But you know what? That was neat. I got 90 minutes sitting down and talking with Mitt Romney about everything. I don't think I stopped to smell the roses enough with that. I'm, I'm actually more nostalgic about it now than I was right at that time. In the moment, you didn't necessarily realize like well, how- Absolutely. You know, the, the, the history, is that what you mean? 
Yeah, the history and just the idea of, you know, being in a room. And and that's really the power of, of the Iowa caucuses. We get the first shot at whispering, sometimes shouting in the ear of a person that very well could be the most powerful human being in the world. And that that's that's what's the I tell my students, I said, go out, get a baseball signed by everybody. Go to the Republicans and the Democrats. You are going to have a baseball signed by the next president of the United States. And I said, have something to tell them. Make sure it's about two sentences. You're not going to remember it. <laughs> yes. But I go out there and do that. And I, I'm really afraid. And that's that's the reason some of these stories are important. I'm glad you're asking me about them. Because I know in my heart of hearts, especially after 60 years of hopefully a little bit of wisdom, if we ever lose this thing, we're never going to get it back. Well, yeah. And I don't think Iowans fully appreciate what we got until we don't have it. Well, and yeah. that's what's difficult about this when we got when we have pressures to to lose our first nation caucus. People don't realize we are flyover and especially now that we're as red as we are, we may not even get a visit from a presidential campaign if we continue to trend red. So, and the Democrats have lost it. I, I imagine that's a cautionary tale. At, 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 the, the Democrats and where they're at right now, aside from policies and all the political. Yeah, I just mean on the caucus. Say, absolutely, you are correct. And I just wished, honestly, just wish they just listened to me, cut their losses in 24. No Biden's going away. The only reason he tossed us is because he can't win. I think they could still save this in 28. I just hope somebody somewhere is guiding them because look, the Republican caucus has more longevity if the Democrats are with us. Right. And I, you guys, I, even you though, guys are, are, that's the one thing you, the Democrats and Republicans, I assume, just agree on in Iowa and always have. Yeah, we've had a little break lately about how they've handled things. <laughs> yeah. But, but yes, in the past, I've had very, very close working relationships with the Democrats. All right, last question. I know you got to go. Iowa Fair, what is your number one piece of advice for a candidate surviving the heat and the meat sticks and the and the fried Snickers and Twinkies of the Iowa Fair. What do you tell these candidates to do? Pick two or three fried foods <laughs> and eat them with four or five hours intermittent so you don't have a stomach ache. Get your selfies taken in the shade and for goodness sake, drink plenty of water because if they want to feel like a million dollars, you wait till they walk through there and every single person and their brother are going to tell them. And let me tell you something, it's not all going to be about immigration policy. They're going to see so many pictures of grandkids. I don't even know if I, I, I don't even know their vision is going to be blurred at the end of it. Drink plenty of water and separate out the fried foods. Take, uh, but it's going to be delicious. What's your uh, number one recommendation for food at the at the fair? What do you go to first? You're going to be you there, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, three days. I'm, I've actually I'm showing up on Friday. I'm walking around uh, with uh, some cameras, and we're talking about where the candidates should go. But and I'll be at uh, Kim Reynolds's event on Thursday night. But uh, I would say, you know what? It's pretty basic. I'm kind of a basic guy. Remember, I'm seventh generation out here. The fresh squeezed lemonade. I mean the kind where I can actually see them squeezing it. Yeah. And then I mean 
a corn dog that I mean, I mean, the actual particles are marching straight to my heart, and and I and I, and I know I shouldn't do it, and I'll starve later. But that's the kind I want. I actually want to feel that. So almost like really bad whiskey. I want to feel that stuff all the way through my digestive system the whole time through. I'm, my mouth is watering as I talk. About it. I love it. I gotta go eat lunch now too. You're making me hungry. <laughs> Jeff Kaufman. Iowa GOP chairman, thank you very much. Really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, we will see you out there very soon. Absolutely, Ryan. I really appreciate your questions and interest. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Thank you to Joe Domkin for the editing help this week. And thank you to Zachary Smith for the field production help in Iowa. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.